Hey everyone, this is Chad Harms, the pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thanks for taking some time to listen to our latest sermon. This sermon is part of a series called Trumpets and Seals, where we are preaching on Revelation chapters 4 through 11. One of the convictions that has led me to do this series at our church is that the book of Revelation is often a book that people are interested in, but fail to be impacted by. My hope is that this series will change that, at least for some people. With that in mind, I want to invite you to visit the webpage that corresponds with this series. It is wilsonville.church trumpets. On that page, you can watch the sermon videos, but more importantly, there is a respond button that makes it easy for you to reach out to us about the series. If a sermon in this series is impactful to you, I'd love you to reach out. Or maybe you have questions about one of the passages we preach on. Don't hesitate to click on that link and send your question to us. Revelation is a difficult book to understand, even for me, but I'll try my best to answer you. There's one more reason that I want you to visit wilsonville.church trumpets. I'm hoping to put a resource there that offers more insight into the details of the book of Revelation. Like I said, my focus in this series is to show people how God can impact their lives through the book, but I know there's a lot of stuff that interests people, and I want to provide something around that. That resource will be on wilsonville.church trumpets, so make sure to visit the site. Who knows? It might already be up when you hear this. Again, thank you for taking time to listen to this sermon. I hope it will be impactful. In fact, I hope that it will help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. So I have this question written down that I think we ask in a lot of situations. And the question is, is it worth it? And we ask this question in a variety of different situations in our lives. I, I told you about how I almost quit basketball in a sermon. I think that was last week. And, uh, and, and really, I just got to a place where I was asking this question, is it worth it anymore? And I decided no, but I, I stuck it out anyway. Uh, and I ask that pretty much any time I do any project around my house because I'm really bad at doing projects. So I'll, I'll start something and then there's a hundred pieces and I only know where five of them are supposed to go. And I'll think, is it worth it? Like who needs a wall? You know, I mean, it can't be worth this amount of effort. Uh, I think that uh, we have times where we can ask that. Are they all gone now? When we ask that with our children, right? Like, is it worth it, man? Like, I mean, is it really worth all this? Like to be carrying on and trying to, you know, take care of them. Uh, I know we have several babies here. You're all feeling that every day. Parents of the babies. I felt it every day for the first year of both my kids' life. Like, is it, was it really worth it? Um, and, and so we ask this question. And here's, here's the big one that we don't say out loud very often. But... It's so with the hearts of everything that is about in the book of Revelation and which we're studying. And I think that we do grapple with it at times, even if we don't vocalize it. And the question is, is it worth it to serve Jesus? Is it worth it to serve Jesus? Now, a few weeks ago, if you've been around, as I've preached through the book of Revelation, you're like, he already dealt with this. He's just preaching the same sermon again. I actually asked a different question and I talked about how I asked this question, is Jesus worthy of your worship? And I answered that question through uh, the book of Revelation. But today, it's more of like an internal question. Like, is it worth it for me to serve Jesus? Is it worth it for me to serve Jesus? And especially that becomes important when it's really, really difficult. If you're looking at like some kind of addiction in your life and you know like God wants you to break it and you're just thinking, I'm trying and I'm trying and I'm trying and I don't feel like I'm getting anywhere, you're like, is it, 
is it worth it? And, and, and like, if you're in a situation in life where, where, where serving Jesus actually creates greater struggles, you don't get the job you want, or your coworkers aren't happy with you, or maybe even your spouse doesn't like it, like, that is difficult, and, and it begs the question, like, is it worth it? And you're at church right now, and so you all guessed that I'm going to say yes. I hope that you could guess that anyway. I'm going to say yes. But there's a specific reason that we see a yes to that question in this book, in the book of Revelation, specifically in Revelation chapter 7. And the answer is, to summarize it all, basically this, when we get to heaven, it will be like one joyous worship party. One joyous worship party. And we're going to see that. I'm going to hopefully say that better as we move along. But we're going to see that. In the verses that we're going to look at today, the second half of Revelation chapter 7. And before I start, some of you will be sick of this already, but I'm going to keep doing it. Uh, I just want you to remember, what is the point of the book of Revelation? And the point is, you have to remember this. You, if you're going to read the book of Revelation in a way that is good and valuable for your life, then you have to have this in mind as you move through the entire book. What is the point? And the point is to encourage Christians who are struggling with outside pressure and internal rejections of truth, God's truth. It challenges us as Christians to remain faithful Despite all of the struggles that might come, despite all of the difficulties that we might encounter in our faith, even, even if it means dying for our faith. And today's passage, maybe more than any that we've talked about, looked at so far, is going to reveal that to us. Listen to Revelation 7, 9, and 10. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches, notice that, palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Question number one, who is the multitude? Who does this represent? And John is actually going to ask this question himself later in the passage, and we'll get an answer, but it's an answer, frankly, that isn't very helpful for us modern-day readers, but it's an important question. I want to do my best to answer that question uh, in a way that, uh, that is helpful, and then I want to move on because, because I want to convince you as we study through the book of Revelation, some of you have heard this, I want to convince you that the book should be a book of impact and not just interest. It should be a book that changes your life, that challenges you to move forward in your faith, and not just a book where you go, hey, I wonder what that means. That seems really cool and really interesting and all of those things. And so, quick answer, as you maybe could have guessed, there's kind of four primary views about how to, how to understand the great multitude because there's four primary ways that people understand the book of Revelation. Historicists who see the book as representing a timeline through Christian history. Preterists see the book primarily about events in the first century. Futurists see the book as primarily about things that will happen just prior or even after the return of Christ. I'll come back to that in a second. And then idealists say, this book is about no historical period at all. 
It's simply there to teach us lessons. It's simply there to call us to remain faithful to Jesus even when it's really hard. Now, I'm going to just run a risk here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a chance, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hope that you guys are scholars and that you want some information. And the risk is that you're just going to be bored for a few minutes, okay? Or maybe I should have like a word when I come out of this time in my sermon and say like, hello, I'm back, start listening again. But I'm going to trust that, that you can engage with me a little bit here on a, on a, a little bit more of an academic level because, because there are nuanced views, you could have guessed this, in, in these four groups. And, and one of them... And I alluded to this last week, and I didn't talk about it, and I felt like maybe I just left people confused. I kind of regretted not saying, like, being more, you know, just overt in what I was saying. Um, I alluded to one of these views is so prevalent in the United States that, frankly, it, it, it casts a shadow for, for good or for bad, for better or for worse. It casts a shadow over the entire way that almost every American Christian reads the book of Revelation. And, and this is a view, a very specific and nuanced view, underneath the futurist view. People that see it as happening, these events happening, you know, just prior to or maybe right after, in some ways, the return of Jesus. And this, this view is called dispensationalism. If you have ever turned on a TV and heard them talk about the book of Revelation, then, then you have heard the view, dispensationalism, you've heard that view uh, taught before. Uh, this is most of our books, uh, most of you know what American Christians grow up thinking about when they think about the book of Revelation is under the banner of dispensationalism. And there's a couple of things that are important for you to know about this. And the first is that the name comes from from the idea that this group, these people that believe this, see human history, specifically biblical history, as being broken up into different time periods or dispensations. And so I'm not going to tell you what those are. You can Google those really easily. You can find those. But one of those is the church age. And we currently live, according to dispensationalists, in the church age. And one part that's really important about this is that in that, they see the church as being really distinct from Israel. They see a huge distinction between spiritual Israel, the church, and national Israel, Jewish people. And that becomes really important as we move further into the book because it will, you'll find, you'll, you'll hear me say, there's some specific ideas about what is behind this view, what this means. And it doesn't really make sense unless you know that dispensationalists are out there and they're the ones giving off this unique, specific viewpoint. And when I say unique and specific, I don't mean unique in that it's weird or strange. It's a majority of modern Christians in America hold to this viewpoint. I said before, but I'll say it again, most Christians throughout history have been preterist, but most modern American Christians are futurist, and, and in that, most are dispensational. And so I tell you all that because 
because you've heard dispensational teaching in the past. And I think if I'm going to be a good pastor who moves us through this book and helps you understand kind of the views that are out there, you're going to go home, you're going to turn on, you know, the TV, you're going to watch a YouTube video, you're going to listen to another local pastor, and they're going to say all this stuff that, that maybe doesn't align with what I'm teaching, and you're going to go, well, where in the world is that coming from? And the probable answer is dispensationalism. That's where it's coming from. You kind of know this view because of, of just like more famous, you know, stories and books. And, and so here, let me just pose the question. I'll come back to that. Who is the multitude? Who's the multitude? Dispensational futurist. They say it's the group of people who become Christians after Jesus raptures the church into heaven. So church people, you and I, Christians now, before the return of Christ, were raptured into heaven. And then there's this 144,000 people that we talked about last week who, who are Jewish Christians, and they lead this multitude to Jesus. And so that's the answer that a dispensationalist would give you. You maybe have seen movies about this. I saw a movie that scared me so badly as a kid. I don't remember what it was, but I have a guess that it was a thief in the night. For you uh, middle-aged and older people, you might remember this scaring you very badly when you were a, a, a teenager and your youth group showed it to you. If you're like my age or my age or older still maybe, uh, the Left Behind series, like it's about the multitude here, these people who are going to be killed because they became Christians after Jesus raptured the, the church, the pre-rapture church into heaven. And so that's one viewpoint. And, and you see now, I hope, uh, back, if you weren't listening, I'm coming back. Uh, so you see that this viewpoint is more nuanced perhaps than some of the other groups who are more general in their understanding of what is happening. Preterists see this group as representing the throng of Gentile Christians who are saved. Historicists see it as a group, the same group, by the way, as the 144,000 in the first half of the chapter, and they would say that it's written, this vision, to inspire Christians after Constantine who are seeing a spiritual decline. They're pretty specific too, right? And then idealists would say, pretty obviously, that it represents, you should be able to guess this, Christians in general. Now, as I say all that, I know I crossed the line, a line that I've set that says, I don't want this to be a book of interest. I want this to be a book of impact. But I thought it was important for you to just understand this view is out there. It's popular. It's common. If you turn it to channel 20 or 720, if you have HD stations, then you will find this view presented during the day. And now you know, kind of, at least the basis of where that view is coming from. From here on out in this sermon, I want to talk about what the multitude teaches us for our lives and how we should be impacted. Far too many people want to stop and say, who is it, who is it, who is it, who is it? But the greater question, I think the reason God gave us this book is like, what do we learn from it for our lives and for our faith? And the first thing that this group teaches us is that no matter how bad things get for us, we will joyfully, very, very joyfully worship God in eternity. Let's just say, let's pretend for a second that this multitude represents 
all Christians, God's servants. And let's say it represents God's servants who have gone through bad things. And I think we can do that. The reason I think we can do that, dispensationalists, forgive me, I think that we can do that because we know that all Christians suffer bad things. And in fact, 2 Timothy 3.12 says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So even if we took this as a group of people who became Christians post-rapture and now suffered and died for their faith, we can still see truths to apply to our lives because every person who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, every Christian, will be persecuted, the Bible tells us. And so whether this group is a specific group in the future, in the past, or wherever, there is something for us to learn. And what we are to take from it is that no matter what we struggle through, no matter how hard it gets for us to follow Jesus, to serve Jesus, we will joyfully worship God in eternity. Notice that they wear white robes. What do the white robes represent? They represent two things. They represent righteousness and represent victory. Righteousness and victory. We will ultimately, no matter what age in history we live as Christians, we will ultimately be declared righteous. That is, that is that we will be declared right before God. We will have a right relationship with God. We will be cleansed from our sins. We will be free from our idolatry. And we will be seen as right and holy because of the work Jesus has done for us. And in that righteousness, we will be victorious. I'm a really competitive person. Some of you know that. I love winning. I actually feel that there is no greater feeling than winning on earth. Uh, I've had moments with God that surpass victory. But as far as non-spiritual moments, I'll backtrack. As far as non-spiritual moments, there's nothing greater than beating somebody else. Uh, that's just real. There is no other feeling that can duplicate it. This is why I, I think I sobbed like a baby the day that I played my last baseball game or didn't play my last baseball game because it was rained out, Oregon baseball. Um, because there was no more of that. There's no, you know, you, you beat your kids at something. It's not the same, right? Like, you just, you suck, child. Like, you can't, like, that's not how it works. Winning is so fun. It's so powerful. And I know this is true of non-athletes, people who don't like sports even, because we just finished watching the show Lego Masters. I don't know if you've seen that. They build these incredible Lego things, um, all, all kinds of things. My son's a big Lego fan. We've been watching this. And, and, and guess what? It was a winning team going out on a limb and saying most of these people are not athletes who are into sports. Uh, and, and yet at the end, when the, when the confetti fell, there was victory and they were crying and their families were crying. It's the first like, like uh, survivor-style show that I've ever watched. And I was like, whoo, I'm crying and they're crying. And the victory was so amazing, although my team did not win, which was really sad. And here, this description of these people who have suffered and died for their faith, they're in heaven, and guess what? What do they feel? They feel as though the confetti is falling and the trophy is being placed in their hands. And we've already seen the crown is being put on their head. They experience victory, and they experience victory because they've been made righteous through Jesus. And so is it worth it to serve Jesus? Well, yeah, because you are declared righteous through Jesus, and you will be victorious through Jesus. But there's more. There's palm branches in this scene. 
And if you've ever, like, been a part of church, maybe you haven't, but if you've grown up in church, you've been in church for more than a year, then, then maybe palm branches seem familiar to you because there's this holiday that we celebrate a week before Easter, the Sunday before Easter. We call it Palm Sunday. And on Palm Sunday, we have, once or twice in our history, waved palm branches but this day is a day that we remember Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem, the city in which he would die for our sins. And the Bible tells us that on that day that Jesus entered into Jerusalem, a couple of things happened. A crowd gathered, and that crowd, they laid coats on the path that Jesus was going on, or riding a donkey, and they waved palm branches. And as they did that, they celebrated Jesus as King and Savior. And here we see maybe, maybe that reflected as they hold palm branches and celebrate Jesus as King and Savior. But if you've been at our church for more than a year, then palm branches and branch waving might seem familiar for another reason. Here at our church, except for this year, we celebrate a holiday called Sukkot. It's an Old Testament holiday. Well, not just an Old Testament holiday, but it's a holiday that comes out of the Old Testament. And it's also called, if you've read through the New Testament, the Festival of Tabernacles. It's this Jewish holiday where they celebrated a variety of things. But what we talk about is the overarching idea that they celebrated at Sukkot, and we celebrate at Sukkot, is the provision and the presence of God. They celebrate and we celebrate that God would provide for us and that God would be with us, which is amazing. One of the cool things about Sukkot is that for Jewish people, and I think we've captured at least some of this, I think everybody who's been to a, our Sukkot service would tell you that it was really fun, except for the one year when it rained like this outside and we were huddled under a little tent just thinking, is it over yet? But every other year when the weather's been decent, it's been fun. And for Jewish people, this was the most festive of their feasts. It was a holiday that they really celebrated. It was a joyous occasion. Uh, we do this thing on the Saturday morning of our celebration. We, we pour water at the cross. And, and this comes from the Old Testament idea, the tradition that flew out of flowed out of the Old Testament where, where they would have this big procession and they would march and, and then the, the, the uh, priest guy, the rabbi, would be in front and, and then they would pour water at the altar. And, and I saw this week that some rabbis say that you've never experienced joy if you haven't seen the drawing of water. For them, this is the epitome of a joyous celebration on earth. By the way, Jesus uses this holiday, it's why we celebrate it, to declare himself the light of the world and the living water. And now here in this heavenly scene, I think what we see, I think what we see is a reflection of Sukkot. I think we see a reflection of this incredible feast and celebration that the first century readers would have known about. And they're going, oh, heaven's going to be like a giant feast party where we're laughing and having s'mores. That's our modern way of doing it. And hanging out together as we celebrate God's eternal provision and his perfect presence in our midst. Whether you take it as a Palm Sunday sighting or a Sukkot sighting, the point is clear that this multitude, they're joyously celebrating 
and worshiping in heaven. The pains and the struggles and the persecution and the martyrdom, for many at least, is forgotten. It's done. And they're having a party at the throne of our God. And when I read this, it reminds me that so many people in modern day Christianity, maybe it's been always, I don't know, I wasn't alive, but like modern Christian circles, we look at heaven and we think boring. We think boring. I'm going to float on a cloud. I think I talk about this too much in sermons, but all dogs go to heaven. Dog dies, goes to heaven, decides to come out because he's bored. That's how we, that's, I think that's how I pictured heaven as a kid. Like they're going to give me a cloud and a harp and that's going to be it. And then I'm going to sit there for the rest of my life. But this, what's being portrayed here is that it will be like a celebration, like the best celebration. We'll be excited and we'll be having fun and all of it, all of it will be part of our worship of the God who made it possible. And notice that God is on his throne. This is a common theme in the book. I've said this before. The first thing that we see in the vision that we are now studying is God on his throne. It means that he is sovereign, that he rules and he reigns above all. No matter who gets elected this week, I know who reigns over all. It's my God. He sits on the throne. And it calls us to ask the question of ourselves, who sits on the throne of my heart? Who am I letting control me? Who am I serving And the answer should be the living God. The answer should be the living God. But notice what they proclaim. They say salvation comes from God and from the Lamb. I want to say to you what I say almost every week because I think it's at the center of all that we do. And I want every person to know what I'm about to say. The Bible declares that each of us are sinners. And not just sinners, but that each of us have in our own ways worshipped something besides the God who created us and made us in his image. We've all rejected him. We've all turned our backs on him. We've all chosen to worship other things, mainly self in one way or another. But God did not look down and say, you know what? If they want to worship something else, then to hell with them. Instead, he came down out of heaven in the person of Jesus. We know him in the book of Revelation as the lion and the lamb of Judah. And he lived a perfectly sinless life. He lived perfectly. And at the end of that life, he suffered and died on a cross. And when he died on that cross, it wasn't just like he was in a lot of physical pain, although he was. He paid the punishment of hell. Our sins were nailed to him on the cross. That's what it says in the book of Galatians or Colossians, one of the two. And it says that our sins were nailed there in his body. Book of 1 Peter says he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, as in another way. He suffered the punishment of hell for us. He died, and then three days later he rose again, and in doing so he conquered sin and death on our behalf. And all we have to do is come to believe that he is the Savior, and we get to be saved. We get to look forward to an eternal, joyous worship party in heaven. And as these people sit there having this party, they say salvation is from you, God. Acts 4.12 says salvation is found in no one else for there is no other name under heaven 
given to mankind by which we must be saved. It is only through Jesus that we can be saved. And in our heavenly expression of worship, one of the things we will declare is that we know that salvation could not be found anywhere but you, God. And before we move on from this first part of our passage, I want to point out that, that these, these people and this multitude, they come from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Christianity is not American. Christianity is not white. It is not Western. Christianity is for all people everywhere. It is for everyone who will come to believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world. I stumbled upon, I don't know how the internet does this to you, but I watched this video this week, some YouTube influencer who, of course, I'd never heard of. Uh, he, he is a black Englishman, and he found out that the city in Arkansas, or he heard, he was actually proved wrong, that the city in Arkansas was the most racist city in America. And so, of course, as YouTubers will do, he, he flies down and he comes to the city. And uh, he comes to the city and everybody's super nice to him and he's kind of like, what's going on here, you know? Uh, it doesn't seem like anybody's racist in this city. But he ends up um, finding out that 15 miles from the city, this is how they got their reputation, there is... Uh, there is uh, there is a leader for the KKK. And, and so he goes 15 miles away and he meets this guy and he lies to him and tells him that he's with the um, greater media and uh, asks if he can schedule an interview and the guy agrees to an interview. And they come and they are in a church doing this interview. They're sitting in a church doing this interview. And uh, this black Englishman looks at the guy and says, hey, it's nice we're doing it in a church because, like, you know, all people are welcome here. And the guy looks at him and goes, well, not you. And then later in the interview, he says, you know, like, if a black kid got hit by a car and was sitting on the side of the road, I would, I would have the same compassion as, as if it was a white kid. And he goes, no, wait, let me stop there. I wouldn't have the same compassion as if it was a white kid. There's no place for this in Christianity. There's a lot of reasons that I believe that, that that is true. But one of them, one clear way we can see that, is that the heavenly multitude is made up of all races and languages and people. When we celebrate in eternity, we will celebrate with people who look very different than us, who at least here on earth speak very differently than us. I don't know what we're going to speak in heaven. <laughs> Uh, but we will be surrounded by people from every tribe, nation, race, tongue, all of those things. But the portion of this vision that we want to look at today is not over because listen to 11 and 12, verses 11 and 12. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Now, just let it hit you for a second, the majesty of this moment. I've already described as I've moved through Revelation what the living creatures are and who the elders might be. And you can go back and listen to that sermon, wilsonville.church slash trumpets. But here again, let the majesty of the moment just kind of sweep over you. There is God in the center of his throne and around him there are these crazy-looking living creatures, and there's these elders, and then there's a mass of humanity, and they're all worshiping him. 
doesn't exist for our interest to go, who, 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 who? It's meant for us to look at it and go, I should join in. You know that song, So Will I? It says, like, if the stars were made to worship, so will I. It's kind of the refrain of the song. You just keep saying that, so will I. And I think this passage is here. It exists here. God inspired John to write it and put it here so that, that we would look at it and say, if the elders and the living creatures and the multitude of people are going to celebrate and worship the God on his throne, the living God on his throne, then so will I. So will I. What is the point of the book of Revelation? The point is that, that we need to keep serving God when it's hard. And here we're reminded that we should keep worshiping God. Part of our serving God is worshiping God, and we should do that when it's hard. And one of the reasons that we should do that is because that's what's currently taking place in heaven. One of the ways that we see that in this book is it peels back the curtain of heaven and says, look how they're going to worship in heaven. Look how you're going to worship in heaven. So worship God like that now. I've said before that the way they worship is really instructive for us. They bow down. We've done it already today. I would say do it this week. Physically bow down before God if you can. Spiritually at least bow down before God and express his worth back to him. This is a homework assignment. Go home, get in your room, get in a closet, get down on your knees and worship God by expressing his worth, his honor to him. Bonus points. Not really. But extra credit, not really. But something else you can try is go through these words that they use. As you express God's worth to him, think about the things that they say, that he's worthy of our praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength. Author Bill English said, We so often seek that which only God is worthy to receive. Who among us doesn't want to be powerful? wealthy, wise, and strong, who wouldn't like to have honor and praise from others. Our worship of God is directly connected to our humility before him. Learning to worship him and ascribe to him these things indicates we think he is worthy and we are not. That's not low self-esteem. That's proper humility. And then verses 13 through 14, we read, Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they and where do they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, they are those who have come out of the great tribulation and th they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Now, if you're a dispensationalist, you hear the word great tribulation, you think of this end time event that takes place after, after Jesus raptures his church. And, and if you, a modern American, you think there's you know, no other way to see the phrase great tribulation because that's just what it refers to. That's what you grow up thinking about. But the preterists and historicists and even other futurists and idealists would beg to differ because they, as you could guess, preterists would say, well, this is about first century events. That's what the Great Tribulation is in the book of Revelation. Historicists would see it as a certain period of upheaval in Christian history. Other futurists would say that it's prior to this rapture of Jesus, this kind of end time, kind of bad situation. And idealists would say it represents struggle throughout history. But even more importantly, what do the robes represent? Victory and righteousness. And how are they made white? It's a beautiful image by the blood of the lamb. Blood stains things, right? We know that. I basically cannot keep a white sweatshirt for more than like a month. 
I feel like I get given a white sweatshirt every single Christmas, and by February, I've ruined the white sweatshirt. Uh, something will happen. I'll try barbecuing in it. There's stuff everywhere. Bryn can't get it out. I'm just a white sweatshirt killer because everything stains white clothes, right? And here, what a beautiful picture. They're made white by the blood of the Lamb. The only way that you can be made white, that you can be made righteous and victorious is through the blood of Jesus, through believing that Jesus died for your sins. There's no other way. And what people so frequently do is they have their, say, black shirt on, right? And they think, if I just paint it enough, if I just make it look a little better, then God will be right with me. If I just do a little pink here and a little drawing over here, I just make it look nice. If I can just put on a better outside than everything, I'll get victory. But the Bible says, no, 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 no. There's one way for you to be made white, and it's through the blood of Jesus. It's the only way you get the white robe of victory and righteousness. Our passage finishes like this. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not be down on them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to the springs, to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This isn't the end. But it's an amazing picture of what happens, what is gained by those who die, who are Christians. The end will come, and it will be pretty similar to this in Revelation chapter 20 and 21. It's the two chapters that nobody really disagrees upon. Like, this is the end. This is the end. This is what it's going to look like. Everybody agrees about that. And we'll see there's some similarities there. But here, we get a picture of what it's like for people who die having been made white, having been made righteous and victorious through the blood of Jesus. In other words, this will be your eternal experience. You will be, you will be in a place where there are no more tears. But notice, notice what they do. They serve God. I think this is important. Part of your eternal experience will be that you'll serve God. Some people don't like that. Like, I just want to sit on a beach in heaven and do nothing ever again. I'm sorry, uh, because part of your eternal experience, if you're a Christian, will be serving God. And I think you're going to really like it. And in fact, if you serve God now in some capacity, you probably find great satisfaction in doing so. This is like the so will I. If I'm going to serve God for eternity, if I'm going to find a way to use my gifts and skills, abilities to serve God in eternity, then what should I do now? Find a way to serve God. We all who are Christians should be serving God in the here and now. This isn't one of those things we wait for. We don't go, I'm going to wait till I get there, till I die, and then I'll serve God. Then I'll be excited about it. No, we should start now. We will work for God in eternity. But here's the greater part of this passage, in my opinion. It's a call back to Sukkot. Notice the language of shelter. Part of Sukkot is that you sleep in these temporary shelters, which remind us of the Jewish people after they were set free from the oppression of the Egyptians, from slavery at the hands of the Egyptians. They moved out into the wilderness, and there they lived in tents, and they 
looked back at that in the celebration of Sukkot, and they thought, wow, even as we lived in these tents, God was providing for us. He gave us food, and he gave us water, and he was with us in a really unique and powerful way. And so at Sukkot, they celebrate that. And here, it's this new way of describing that God is going to take care of us, that God is going to protect us, and that God is going to be with us. God won't just dwell with his people someday, but rather God's people will be permanently sheltered by his presence. I know that's nuanced, but, but this isn't saying that God will just be with us in a better way. It's saying that we will be permanently sheltered by God's presence. And in that, there won't be any more hunger or thirst or sunburn. It's pretty much what it says. And the lamb will be at the center of it all, and he will shepherd us. It reminds us of John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. Jesus, the lamb whose blood purifies us, becomes our shepherd. He is our shepherd, but he becomes, in a more literal way, our shepherd. And in those moments, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, from our eyes. So is it worth it to serve Jesus? If you get to have an eternal existence that's like a party, a joyous celebration, a joyous worship celebration, and you never have to worry again about being hungry or thirsty or sunburned, and you never will cry because all of the things that produce our sad tears will be gone, sounds worth it to me. I know this is a terrible illustration, but I thought about as I was preparing this sermon how excited my dog is to see me when I get home. Um, In some ways, I'm his shepherd. I provide for him. I take care of him. I tell him what to do. Uh, And I do provide his food and his water, although he doesn't always act like it comes from me. But I provide his food and his water. I provide his shelter, right? And when I'm gone, it seems sad. But when I come home, he loses his mind. He's so happy. He's so excited. He runs around the room. He acts like he's never seen me before. He just joyously celebrates me. He jumps. He, 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 he makes a squeal noise. He just, he's so excited to see me. Now, the reality is that even when I was gone, even when I appeared invisible to him, let's say it that way, I still was the one providing his food and his water and his shelter, right? That didn't change. I was providing for him. But when he got into my physical presence it's like he's like my provider is home and it changes into a joyous celebration i think that's what's going to happen for us god is taking care of us now he's protecting us he's with us if we're christians but when we experience the fullness of that provision and that protection and that presence we're gonna go crazy in celebration and it tells us that it's all worth it it's all worth it and so what are we to do with all of this we should bow down and express god's worth to him we should love people of all colors and nationalities and languages we should choose to put god on the throne of our hearts we should bow before god and express his worth to him i'll say that again but we should serve god when it's really hard because it's worth it like you're gonna have moments this week right where where somebody in your life, your spouse, your coworker, a customer, everything they've done to you suggests that the best, easiest, 
most natural course of action is to just lay the hammer down and be a jerk to them. Like, I'm just going to say the mean thing, do the mean thing, treat you badly. And in that moment, you're going to have to choose. Am I going to serve God or am I going to not serve God here? And I don't think you will if you don't remember that it's worth it. And I hope this week you'll go, it's worth it. Because I'll joyously celebrate an eternity and you'll choose to be kind. There may come a moment this week where you have to choose whether you're going to lie or tell the truth. And lying is going to get you out of something. It's going to be the best course of action as far as, you know, getting away with it or gaining or whatever. And, and in your head, I hope that you'll ask this question. Is it worth it to serve Jesus even in this moment when it's hard? Even in this small struggle, is it worth it? And I hope you'll remember, yes, because heaven will be a joyous celebration, worship, party. You're going to have lots of moments this week where you're going to have to ask yourself, is it really worth it to serve Jesus? And I offer to you that the answer should be, yes, it is worth it to serve Jesus because in eternity we will joyously celebrate and worship him for the victory and the righteousness that he has given us. Let me pray for you. Lord Jesus, I pray that, uh, that, that this wouldn't just be a, a passage of interest, but it would be one of impact. And I know that our, even our temptation as we walk away from here would be to, to go like our dispensationalist right. And I think it terribly misses the point of this book to do that. I think what you're calling us here, God, is to serve you when it's hard. And really what you mean by hard, I think, in this book most often is even if it costs us our lives. But here we are as modern Christians, Lord, you know, struggling to serve you when the election doesn't go our way or when our spouse isn't as nice to us as we'd like or when our kids throw a little bit of a tantrum or when the customer is a jerk to us. And, and, and God, I think... You know, if the big thing is true, it follows here, Lord, that the small thing is true. If, if we should serve you even to the point of death, then we should serve you even when it costs us a little something. Even if it requires a little bit of humility and we let our spouse get away with it or the customer get away with it or it costs us something in our job or we lose a little bit of money, we should serve you then for sure, God, if we should serve you at the expense of our lives. And I pray for all of us that we, God, would do that. That every time, Lord, this week we have a decision to make about whether it is worth it to serve you or not, we would say yes, because we know that someday we will be in your presence and we will go crazy like a dog being released from its kennel. We would go crazy, God, like, like we've just won a Lego championship. We would, go we would go crazy, God, because we know the victory we have through the righteousness that you gave us, Lord. And so all of it is worth it here and now. Remind us of that this week. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.